0: listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. Today, we're listening to a lecture that was archived under the title, The Imagery of Vision in the Novels of James Joyce. With a title like that, How Could I Resist? And I was right to choose it. This is a remarkable lecture series. These talks, the first of which is the lecture we're about to hear, were given over four sessions beginning on November 15, 1968, at the Esalen Institute, a holistic and educational retreat center in California's majestic Big Sur mountain range. There's a nice continuity and flow at work in these lectures. And I think it would be nice to begin the next episode of Pathways with the second session of this 1965 Esselin Lecture. Esselin was established in 1962 and quickly became the center of the human potential movement. For more than half a century, Esselin has initiated new areas of research, theory, practice, and action all of which have fostered social change and the realization of the human potential. Esalen also houses the Center for Research and Theory, which, according to Esalen's website, seeks to nourish and support an emerging school in which theory, research, and practice will co-evolve to embody our latent supernature. You can learn more about Esalen at its website. Esalen.org Professor Campbell became a lecturer and scholar-in-residence at Eslin in 1965 and returned every year to the beautiful Big Sur region of Monterey, California to, as Bob Walter has said, share his latest thoughts, insights, and stories. Since 1993, to honor that tradition, Bob has been offering the Revisioning Your Hero's Journey Mythological Toolbox Play Shop as a way to experientially understand how Campbell's work can impact your own life and simultaneously honor Campbell by moving his work forward in the world. It is returning this year and will be held at Esalen from May 21st through May 26th. And register for the Play Shop at Esalen.org. On that note, I hope you'll enjoy Joseph Campbell's 1968 Esalen Lecture, on the imagery of vision in the novels of James Joyce. And perhaps later this year, you may venture out to Esalen and take in the unparalleled beauty of the place that enamored and inspired Joseph Campbell and give yourself the opportunity to experience the power of Campbell's work in your own life. As always, immediately following Professor Campbell's lecture, I'll return with some final remarks and explore some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. And now, here's Joseph Campbell.
1: Uh, When Mike invited me to come here this fall, he suggested I should have something to say about schizophrenia. And I said, I didn't know anything about schizophrenia, but I might talk about Joyce. And he said, that'd be just fine. (laughs) And then he arranged for me to have a discussion with Dr. John Perry in uh, San Francisco, which took place last evening. A couple of weeks ago, Dr. Perry sent me a couple of um, off-prints from articles that he had written on the phenomenology of schizophrenia, and I was simply stunned to find that the imagery uh, was exactly that of the... Hero with a Thousand faces, which I have written some long time ago. And uh, then last evening, I had this long discussion with him of these matters. And I'm going to try now to um, to deal with the imagery of Joyce uh, in some relationship to what I learned yesterday. Uh, Dr. Perry made a very to me, an important statement when he spoke of mythological imagery as being affect images, where the image is the equivalent of a system of sentiments and uh, emotional impulses. My own definition of a mythological and affective mythological symbol had been a sign, an energy-releasing and directing sign. And what he pointed out was that in schizophrenia the separation takes place between affect and image. That is to say the person's affects do not have images through which to play. And of course in our tradition all of the images, the mythological images, have been deprived of their relationship to the affect and interpreted in terms of rational devaluations. Or, as in the Hebrew and Christian traditions, in terms of historical events which may or may not have taken place and in any case are of very little importance to a person's psyche. So, um, looking at Joyce's work and um, realizing what Joyce has meant to me uh, ever since I first uh, encountered uh, Ulysses and uh, the portrait in Paris back in 1927 so that all these years he has been a kind of uh, guide for my own interpretation of uh, mythological material, I realized that the the big thing he did for me and might do for others also is bring the huge tradition that we have of mythological images from many, many sources and strains of thought into relationship to our own affect system. I think this is uh, the impact. And what I'm going to try to do here is um, point out how Joyce, how it seems to me, Joyce built these images. Now, uh, all day yesterday, I was working on these four talks I'm going to give, revising my thoughts about these entirely. So this is going to be um, an effort on my part to bring forth, the, the formulate some of my own thinking about this and any contributions I can receive from the people here um, will be very welcome, and I, I hope no one will feel any hesitation in bringing forward suggestions or, or uh, uh, criticisms. Now, I'd like to begin simply by asking, how many here have not read The Portrait of the Honest as a Young Man? Everyone has. Oh, you have not? I have
0: not.
1: About three or four have not. How many have not read Ulysses? Well, I will talk then uh, to those who have not. That's to say, I will assume that the person I'm speaking to hasn't read the book, and uh, those who have will have the advantage, of course, of a perspective of criticism that uh, the others will not. When one opens the portrait of the artist as a young man, the very first thing one comes on is a little statement in Latin. Uh, motto in Latin, at at ignotas animum dimittit in artes, and he turns his mind to unknown arts. The reference is to Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 8, line uh, 188, and when you turn to that, you find it refers to Daedalus. Uh, Daedalus in Crete, the fashioner of the labyrinth who is regarded in the classical tradition as the patron of the arts, the great master craftsman. The whole mystery of the labyrinth is, of course, the work of this artist. King Minos, the tyrant of Crete wished to keep Daedalus as a kind of uh, serf working for him, and uh, Daedalus determined to fly from Crete. So with his son, Icarus, he did fly. And the line, and he turned his mind to unknown arts, refers to the decision to make wings of art. Now this motif of the flight, and the, the bird, and the bird of art, is a dominant throughout Joyce's Joyce's work. comes right even at the end of Finnegan's Wake, years and years and years after the uh, writing of that little motto in his book. I don't know why it is that when people talk about the flight of the artist, they always refer to Icarus and not to his father Daedalus. Icarus uh, flew too high and uh, the wax melted on his wings and he fell into the ocean. So this is a rather dismal thought. The sentiment seemed to be on most people's part that you can't make it. Well, Daedalus did make it. And uh, that's the first point here. Joyce is a very optimistic man with respect to the capacity of a competent artist to achieve the release. Uh, Now, what's the sense of this motto? Daedalus escaped from the um, social order of Crete to the mainland. Joyce escaped from Ireland to the mainland. That's the first allegory that comes to mind. He escapes from the little provincial culture of Ireland to its source, that's to say the great mainland source. But there's another jump Joyce is making, and that is from the provincial symbolism of the Roman Catholic Church to the universals, or as uh, Jung calls them, the archetypes, of which the Christian imagery is an inflection. And with that goes the uh, thought of escaping from the spiritual provincialism of one's own personal surroundings into the total humanity which is our uh, deep heritage that i would say is the is the first point here and what we're going to try to do is see how one can open out the local symbols into into larger ones and what the uh, psychological aspect of this journey uh, might be uh, in my own case, I had been brought up a Roman Catholic and had, uh, long before uh, reading Joyce, um, lost all conviction in the uh, force of the images, and with Joyce uh, I learned how to uh, open them out. And, uh, I think it will work for, for others as well, not only with respect to Christian, but with respect to whatever heritage one has. The um, In relation now to the art of the novel, there's a point here. Joyce inherits the late 19th century naturalistic novel tradition. His masters, the ones he turns his uh, thoughts to, are those uh, who were the, the masters of the great naturalistic novel. But this little sentence at the opening that I've just quoted points out that there's going to be a mythological allegory running along here as well. Joyce wasn't the only person who was working that way at that time. One of the things that uh, I find most interesting about the literature of the first half of the 20th century is that a number of authors starting out from that naturalistic tradition went by stages into the sphere of mythological thought. Uh, The two whom I think of always in relationship to each other in this are Joyce and Thomas Mann. Now, Joyce was a Catholic who left Catholicism behind, Thomas Mann a Protestant who left his Protestant heritage behind. Their first works come out within a few years of each other. Thomas Mann's Budenbrooks and Antonio Kirger tell the story of a young man of uh, German Bürger background who becomes alienated from his uh, family values, goes over to Bohemia, as it was called in those days, and uh, finds that he can't settle for that either. He has committed himself with his heart to those who live, and those who live uh, joyously and, and well, even though they don't have much up here in the head. Then he goes to the group that have everything up here in the head <clears throat> but aren't living so well, as he says, uh, the girls who fall down when they dance. And uh, these people have a strongly critical attitude toward life and nothing but disdain. And Tonio finds himself between these two poles. And the very important statement in Thomas Mann's formulation of his aesthetic theory comes at the close of Tonio Kroger where Tonio writes to a, a Russian girl in the south of France, Elisaveta something or other, and um, explaining to her that he can't go with them in the derogatory attitude toward life that he has already given his heart to what he called the blue-eyed blondes. And then he formulates his theory of what he calls... A plastic erotic, or plastic irony, which is Thomas Mann's solution of this middle, middle way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's uh, as follows The mind with its word kills. The mind is analytical, <clears throat> and when you name anything, <laughs> you have cut it down. This is a basic principle. Personality, individuality is a limitation, and one can always see the defect in the limitation. Perfection, however, is cold. It is anything but lovable. There's nothing lovable about ice-cold perfection. What is lovable is imperfection. So here you come to this double edge. You name with ruthless accuracy the defects. And those are exactly what is lovable, and you name them with love. And this gives humanity and life and the irony and uh, paradoxology of life to the work. It is no longer a cartoon, you might say, that is being rendered. And uh, he, he, this young author, and it is Thomas Mann, a young man, he was in his middle 20s at this time, Uh, says, I believe it is this principle of love flying on the arrow of the mind's judgment as a bomb, so to say, on the point of the arrow that translates a mere literary man into a poet and an artist. This joy in life and love for life, with its defects, Joyce at the same time Now, uh, Mann's works came out 1903, 1904. It was just about that time that Joyce, who was 10 years younger than uh, Mann, uh, had had completed the first draft of what turned out to be finally, 10 years later, when published, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. It took a long time to get that book published. Anybody who's writing and has the manuscripts come back might uh, console himself with this consideration, nobody would publish this book. Uh, This deals, uh, as I'm going to uh, be showing uh, tomorrow, with a young man also who finds himself alienated from his uh, social background, uh, goes over into the other world of the arts, and formulates an aesthetic theory. It is then on the wings of this aesthetic theory that Joyce says to work to write. Now, both of these men were writing purely naturalistic novels, or so it seemed, in these two first works. But each of them was using a literary device that promised something else, and that is to say the refrain. In uh, Thomas Mann, he took this over from Wagner, the leitmotif. Certain phrases come back, come back, come back. Key phrases, and every time they come back, they come back with amplified sense. For example, in um, the blue-eyed blonde motif, what that represents. His father is a blue-eyed blonde. His mother, however, is a Mediterranean woman with dark hair. The father is full of discipline. The mother rather relaxed about that, somewhat aesthetically and artistically disposed. A little bit careless, a little bit disheveled. And uh, the boy inherits both of these. And then you begin to find against this uh, blue-eyed blonde the motif of the dark-haired gypsy. And the boy says, after all, we're not gypsies in a green wagon. We do have to be disciplined around here. And these two motifs come back time and time again, opening out into what today would be called the establishment against the hippie world. You know, this great polarity, it's an old time thing that that plays. And the young person has to find himself between these these two poles. Now in Joyce, the echoing word also begins to uh, give you the clue to um, implications lying behind the acts of life And it's the joining together, the noticing of analogies that begins to give you the sense of an underlying motif, an underlying force that shows itself now in this, now in that, now in another aspect. And this is exactly what begins to remove your mind from the mere literal detail. All these literal details begin to add up in an emotional way, not in terms of rational relationships, but in terms of rhythms and so on. This is the device that both of these men use some enormously. Well, then the next thing is that after the First World War, both men, each ignorant of what the other was doing, turned out their major works. Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain appeared in 1924 and Joyce's Ulysses in 1922. And what were these works? These were apparently naturalistic novels, but in both cases they were using intentionally and with direct references, the mythology of the hero voyage. The voyage into the world of of darkness and the abyss and the return. Since I'm going to be talking about Ulysses and since I will be making some references to the Magic Mountain in this connection, I won't go on with, uh, with this at this present moment. But I just want to point out that the next work of these two men, went into the mythological world entirely. The first work was naturalistic with an aesthetic uh, echoing uh, device that began to point the emotions past the naturalistic level. The second work of both of these men, naturalistic in its uh, form, but with deliberate calling in of the myth. And I'll show in Ulysses how Joyce uh, handled this. And then in their last works, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which appeared in 1939, and Thomas Mann's Joseph novels, uh, 34 to 44 were the dates of that. We are in the myth world entirely. We have abandoned the upper world, and they both plunged in here. Now, it was Joyce's intention to write still another work, uh, which would have completed his uh, journey, you might say, but he died uh, before that came out. Here we have, then, not only the flight from Crete to the mainland, from Ireland to the mainland, from uh, Roman Catholicism to the great archetypes of myth, but also from the naturalistic novel to the archetypes of mythology as well. And uh, I would say that if we can do it, and I'm going to uh, ask your help as we go on here, I'd love to uh, try to see how the details of a life can themselves be opened out so that we can feel the archetypes playing under them. Well, so much then for that first motto at the opening of the portrait of the artist as a young man, et ignotas animum dimittit in artis, and he turns his mind to unknown art. As I say, the reference is to Ovid. Now, Ovid's metamorphoses, gives us the clue again. The, word, the name of Arvid's work, the Metamorphoses. In the 15th book, at the end of Ovid, we have a wonderful scene where he is talking to an, uh, a, a sage living in isolation, and the sage is Pythagoras. And the sage gives the theme of the book, namely that the spirit appears in various forms. Nothing dies, the spirit moves from one form to another. That one animating power shows itself in the animal world, in the plant world, in the human world, in the divine world, and hence these metamorphoses that take place. Ovid furthermore gathers his myths In categories, he gives a great many examples of the god and nymph, for example, in in play, or the youth seeking the father. So that, again, you see that these great themes appear in many metamorphoses. (coughs) A theme that runs through Joyce's work is this one of what Ulysses is called consubstantiality, the consubstantiality of the father and the son. That is a (laughs) theological (laughs) motif. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, three personalities in one substance. What is that substance? What is its psychological validity? This is um, moving in Stephen's mind, the hero's mind, uh, throughout the work. And uh, so in a sense, Ovid not only has given him the start from Ireland to the mainland, but also this theme of consubstantiality, the one form showing through all things. Furthermore, Ovid's Metamorphoses is a kind of handbook of the whole classical mythological tradition. Any good edition of the Metamorphoses is as good a handbook of classical mythology as you can get. All you have to do is look up what you're interested in in the index, and there it is. But what one notices as soon as one opens up it is that the main lines of the stories are duplicated also in the Bible, so that you can jump from the classical to the Hebrew tradition, to the Semitic tradition, and back of that, of course, to the Sumero-Babylonian tradition from which both the Greek and the Hebrew have come. So we're moving back to sources again from these provincial worlds of the classical and the biblical to worlds earlier than that from which they stem. And we're beginning to find immediately that uh, there is, as it were, a general human tradition that shows itself in all these myths. Next, of course, Ovid's day was the day of the great Hellenistic coming together of Oriental and Occidental materials. And Joyce follows that through, and very, very early in in Ulysses, you hear him talking about the Upanishads and the theosophical movement in Dublin and London in those days. And so Joyce moves into the oriental sphere, and the climaxes in Ulysses are all in terms of Hindu mythological images, Shiva, Shakti, and so forth. So that what he's doing, among other things, is compounding all these myths, not in the way of a mere uh, eclecticism, but in a valid syncretism, pointing out these as metamorphoses of a basic material. Now, while Mann and Joyce were going down this slide into the mythological realm, In the sciences of psychology and anthropology, the same work was being done in exactly those same years. These were the years of Fraser, Freud, and Jung. All of these men interpreting mythology in psychological terms. Fraser's Fraser's psychology is um, pre-Freudian. It is uh, rational, associational psychology. And so actually he is frustrated when he tries to find the ultimate uh, interpretations of these symbolic forms, and he interprets them in a late 19th century way as uh, being mistakes. He interprets magic, for instance, in terms of what he term- calls a sympathetic system, because ideas are associated in the person's mind, the person thinks they are associated in the fact you you make a sound like rain falling with a rattle and you think it's going to bring rain. That's one way of association by imitation. Or uh, a nail has uh, pierced your foot and you clean the nail and uh, take care of the nail. That's the uh, association of contiguity, uh, things that to are touched. But the fact that there are associations in the unconscious level which don't, uh, sub- uh, are susceptible to rational interpretation, he did not uh, realize. Freud's anthropologist is Fraser. Freud uses Fraser as his thought and simply follows the same route but drops the dimension of the unconscious in there. And you know Freud's unconscious, what it uh, amounts to. It is the repressed recollections of one's infancy. For Freud, the contents of the unconscious once were conscious and can be made conscious through analysis, and that's the cure. In other words, they stem from biography your own life. And in Totem and Taboo, when he interprets the great mythological uh, motifs of the totemic and uh, taboo systems, he interprets these in terms of historical events that have been remembered and repressed. So that the Freudian unconscious is an unconscious essentially of a biographical and historical order. It is as though you had written something on a memo pad and had written it badly and come back and can't recall what it was you wrote down. And it's a bit annoying. You know it means something. You can't get it to mean what it is. And then perhaps you uh, think back and, uh, oh, yeah, I remember it. And and then you can read what you wrote. (coughs) Jung goes a step further. Jung accepts this Freudian unconscious of the biographical uh, beginnings. That is to say, those contents of the unconscious which have come into it, he calls this the personal unconscious. And when a person comes to him with the dreams to be interpreted, he will ask the person, mm. what does this make you think of, what does that make you think of, and find what the person's associations are out of his biography, out of his experience. But every now and then in these dreams, there comes an image that the person has never experienced, a mythological image. He has dropped out of the realm of personal recollection into another realm. The contents of the unconscious are not only the residuum of personal experiences, but also are functions of the dynamics of the human body, which you didn't invent. The unconscious for Jung is first, and consciousness is simply something that arose out of unconsciousness. And this is biologically a fact, both in terms of the history of the race, and in terms of the history of the individual. The child's body, with all of its functionings and all the implications of that body are fashioned in the mother's womb. The child isn't rationalizing about this, and it's born with a lot of impulses that it never decided to have. There they are, and it's doing darn well. And it's when these are pushed back or frustrated or thrown off the line that uh, discombobulations occur, which then have to be corrected. And where does the correction come from? It comes from this body impulse. And so Jung has what he calls the collective unconscious as well. And he interprets the mythological imagery in dreams not by asking the patient, what does this remind you of, but by looking around to see what that symbol has meant forever in myths. The technique of what he calls amplification through comparative mythological studies. His thesis also is that the unconscious compensates for consciousness. It, is, it has a positive value, it is corrective. Furthermore, its imagery is not trying to disguise, for Freud, the imagery of the unconscious is trying to disguise wishes that are taboo. For Jung, the unconscious is trying to tell you what the correction is of your conscious attitude but you can't read it because you've forgotten the language. He says it's like a text in a script that you haven't deciphered. And so he said, let's decipher it. How does one decipher a script? So he takes what he calls the philological attitude and by, you know how it is when you get a letter from a friend who doesn't write very clearly and here's a word you can't make out at all, you, you look at this letter and see uh, uh, if there's another one like it in the word that you can read, and then this one, and now oh, yes, the way she's making her A's this year, and so forth, and you put the word together. Well, so it is with a, with a dream. Well, it's an image that you can't <clears throat> interpret. You look around to see how it has uh, been interpreted in other manifestations of the unconscious. Now, the reason I'm going into all of this about Jung is that both Joyce and Mann Take the Union attitude toward the unconscious. Joyce has this wonderful line in Finnegan's Wake where he speaks about the time when we were young and easily Freudian.
0: And uh, <laughs>
1: that's a, a nice little uh, clue. And uh, Th- uh, Thomas Mont of course, that wonderful paper that he delivered at uh, Sigmund Freud's 80th birthday, uh, Freud in the Future. <laughs> Why the people who were trying to do a Why the people who were trying to do a favor for Freud thought it a good idea to invite an artist to uh, talk about somebody else but himself, I can't imagine. But uh, what happened there was that uh, Thomas Mann stood up and in that very, very formal way he had, he uh, he said, um, it's a great pleasure to be invited to talk to this master of uh, the science of uh, the psyche, who uh, came to the same conclusions I already presented in the Woodenbrooks and uh, Antonio Kurga uh, from my study of uh, German Romantic philosophy and uh, I congratulate the doctor on having uh, rephrased in clinical terms the basic thoughts of uh, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and von Hartmann, and he went on down, down the list. <laughs> and then he, uh, he said, I uh, can tell you that I had uh, never heard of Freud until after I'd finished my own statements about all this. And uh, it was a great pleasure to find myself, as it were, confirmed in my thoughts in this other, in this other uh, part of the world, the world namely of medicine, which I've always felt myself very uh, close to in a certain way. And he said, and now, of course, uh, this whole thing has moved on, and I'm in the midst of writing the Joseph novels and receiving great inspiration from Carl Jung, who uh, (laughs) seems to have gone a bit further than the other old man. And gosh, he just did that, and uh, you kind of wonder what was happening uh, to the psyche of the psychologist who was being celebrated there. Uh, It it is... uh, Interesting to read then uh, the Joseph novels of Thomas Mann in relation to what one would know of Jung and see it's exactly there. Even the, the themes that uh, Jung has already explicated come forth in Mann. And then you turn from those books, from Mann's works, to Joyce's. And I tell my students if you want a real, real guide to Ulysses, get hold of the Magic Mountain. As the same, the same. Uh, ideas. So what's the difference now between Mons attitude and Joyce's, and why is it that we turn to the Magic Mountain to read Ulysses and not Ulysses to understand the Magic Mountain? Well, as I said in the beginning, Joyce had been a Catholic. And the Catholic priest turns his back, or used to before this new novelty comes along, turns his back to the uh, <laughs> congregation and is at work on a mystical activity. The center of the Catholic religion is the altar. The center of the Protestant religion is the pulpit. What would a Protestant service be without any congregation? Here's a, here's a minister talking to uh, nobody at all. But many and many a Catholic mass is celebrated without any congregation present at all. This is Joyce as against Mann. Man is always addressing you. He is always in the pulpit he gives you the symbol and then tells you what it means. Joyce, who was brought up on these symbols as a Roman Catholic, uh, he is uh, bringing God down through the roof. And uh, whether you can catch on or not, it's up to you. The, the math works, whether there's anybody there or not. And Finnegan's Wake works, whether anybody can read it or not. It really does. It, it terminated a whole period in the history of literature. Um, Furthermore, when you go into a Catholic home, I mean a real Catholic home, what pictures do you see? You see the Madonna, you see Christ, as Leopold Bloom says, with his heart on his sleeve. Uh, uh, You see all these uh, mythological motifs, and the youngster is brought up in the presence of these mythological images. He is an expert in archetypal images. His own mother and father are this side of the backdrop of the Virgin Mother and God the Father. And his parents are simply local inflections of those great archetypes. Whereas when you go into a Protestant home, what you will see will be ancestral portraits round about and uh, perhaps horses that they're... To care for and dogs and uh, scenes of mountains that they like to climb, all that kind of personal biographical material. And uh, Thomas Mann, in his uh, description of the spiritual experiences of his heroes, always is telling about, for instance, in, uh, in Buddenbrook's The Little Boy Hanno, uh, he remembers his grandfather telling him as he looks into the family baptismal bowl. About this ancestor, that one, and the other one, and the family Bible has all the names in it of the family, and all that kind of thing. It's the family, it's the family, and then this links up so easily with the uh, Old Testament tradition, which is the family also going back to great great grandpa Yahweh. It is the, that that family, that racial line. Whereas the Catholic thing is the is the impersonal archetype much more, so that. Man always has the quality of an amateur in mythology, uh, finding out about these things as he goes along. And uh, by the time he gets to the Joseph novels, he's really got it cold. But uh, Joyce comes to the thing from these archetypes. And this, this leads to a very interesting contrast between the problem of a Catholic who leaves his Catholicism behind and the problem of a Protestant who falls into the abyss of the archetypes. The Catholic has a problem relating the actual world to all these images that he's been brought up on that somehow doesn't fit. And what Joyce has done has been to start with these behind him and with the world out there and carry them back, chains of associations all along the place. Yeah. Thomas Mann falls into the, the abyss of the archetypes in the Magic Mountain that cut off from the world and then comes back. These are two, two different problems. Well, now the next point. Thomas Mann's great model for his life, for his work, is Goethe. And the Faust is the great uh, work of Goethe that just sits behind everything Mann did. Joyce's master and model is Dante. I think it's fair to say that Dante, in uh, his wonderful uh, Vita Nuova and uh, Divine Comedy, Brings to experiential statement the implications of the medieval Gothic dogmas. They are rendered; they are not as dogma, but as experienced affect. And I think it's fair to say that Goethe's Faust uh, does the equivalent thing for the great um, post-Gothic period, and just. Pre revolutionary times. It, it kind of culminates the, uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, let me speak about Dante and how this works on choice. Dante's first work, the Vita Nuova, is this uh, collection of poems that he wrote as a youth and their elucidation. How the aspect of uh, Beatrice wakened the inner eye and uh, carried him finally through the divine comedy to the very throne of God. At the conclusion of the Vita Nuova, Dante says, I now stop writing and am going to prepare myself to write of her such a book as was never before written a woman. And the book that he writes is the divine comedy in three parts. Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Joyce imitating Dante, his first work, the portrait of the artist as a young man, is the equivalent of the Vita Nova, imitates it in in all of its basic themes, as I'm gonna be trying to show tomorrow. And he moves on then to his divine comedy, also to have been in three parts. Ulysses is the Inferno, Finnegan's Wake is the Purgatorio, and there was to have been the Paradiso. Now, let me just say a word about Finnegan's Wake and the Purgatorio. Purgatory is that kind of graduate school (laughs) into which souls go who have learned the lessons of life well, but not well enough to graduate into heaven. uh, Their spirit has been somewhat opened, but not to the extent of being able to apprehend the beatific vision. And so, those occluding um, commitments, which we call sins, venial sins, sins that can be cleared away, are in purgatory, purged away, so that the eyes open to the beatific vision. This is the equivalent of the reincarnation motif in the Oriental system. From one life to another, you become cleansed of your occluding limitations until finally you are utterly released. And Joyce has made a a complete analogy present here between the motifs of purgatory, and the reincarnation. Now what is being reincarnated is not only the individual, but also the whole universe. It goes round and round and round. That's the whole theme of this circle that the Buddha holds up when he assumes the teaching posture. Round and round and round, and how do you get out? Finnegan's Wake, I'm going to show you, is written in a circle with a break. There is an out. That is exactly the purgatorio, that is exactly the reincarnation, and one goes out into the void, and that would have been book three, the, uh, the heaven. What is hell? Hell is the state of a soul that is absolutely committed to its earthly experiences without recognizing through these experiences the radiance of the divine dimension, You're stuck simply in the time-space aspect of the experience. And hell is simply the experience of the limitation of your limitations, which you were so firmly committed to that nothing could break it. No one could show you the dimension of light through your experiences. That is the state of the characters in, in Ulysses. They are, they are bound, locked in the hard ring of their ecosystems, uh, devaluating, uh, the uh, mystical dimension. And as Dante and Virgil wandered through hell, looking at these souls bound to their little circles, so Stephen Daedalus and Leopold Bloom wander through Dublin. Now Dante takes us to hell and shows us Florence in hell. These are the people of Florence there, and it's impossible to understand Dante without the footnotes telling you who these different characters are, what their lives were, and why they're there. So, we have Florence as Hell. Joyce has reversed it. We have Hell as Dublin. Um, Dante pitches us out of the world into this uh, mythological dimension. Joyce brings the mythological dimension into the world and shows you this thing through the world. Now one more point while I'm on on this uh, part of my story. In uh, Joyce's theory of um, of art with respect to writing, he divides uh, the writing into three categories, the lyric, the epic, and the dramatic. The lyric mode presents the the statement, in immediate relation to the subject. Oh, I feel great. Oh my, I feel wonderful. That's the lyric mood. The dramatic presents the objects in immediate relationship to the object. When you see a presentation on the stage, the author Properly at any rate, isn't sticking his head out from the wings and saying, Isn't she wonderful? Now watch here, this is uh, this way. The objects are simply presented and all their implications must come from them. The epic mode is mediate between the two. In the novel, in the epic, the objects are presented and the author's comment is present. Joyce definitely decided for the dramatic. And he presents his material even in the style of the person he's talking about. Princess, the portrait of the artist as a young man begins with this tiny little boy. The little boy just as a little tot. And it begins with the sentence Once upon a time, there was a moo cow coming down along the road, and this uh, moo cow coming down the wrong road made a nice and little boy named Baby Tupu that was his name now that's not the way joyce at the age of 21 was talking that's the way that little boy was talking and the style grows up with the little boy by page 12 it's the style that hemingway took over for his first writing
0: <laughs> and then it
1: moves on and on and on and when he becomes a college uh, student with all the religious agonies of the college student it's the style of uh, Carnell newman and uh, then you move to ulysses and the style for each chapter is a sheer invention that is meant to render by its, its form the effect uh, of that time of day and the intention of that scene. So when you move from the day world, then, to the world of Finnegan's Wake, which is the psychological interior world of this churning thing with the light shining through, you're writing, he's writing in dream language, so that the, the words carry multiple meanings. Sir so Tristram, the d'amores, over the short sea, had passed on Corrie, arrived from North America this side, the isthmus of Europe Minor, to wield fight, history, a fine his peninsula war. Now had as rocks by the stream of Coney exaggerated themselves to Lawrence County's Gorgios, while they went doubling their mumper all the time. Shh. There a voice from a fire below said, Mish, Mish, to Tauf Tauf, to Aunt Petrick. Not yet, though, when soon after had a kid scab, but ended a bland old Isaac. Not yet, the all fair in Vanity was saucy sisters wrought with comb, not on Joe. Rather, Peck Carlsbad had Jemma Shen brewed by Ocklight, and Rory and two, the Reagan brow was to be seen, rings them all the awkward face. Now, that's uh, a little different. Uh, now, what the heavenly language was to have been, we do not know, except that uh, Joyce <laughs> is reported to have. That it was going to be lucid, simple, and clear, which is as it should have been. And now, when one moves from this portrait through Ulysses to Finnegans Wake, one finds the same motifs coming up. It is, it's an amplification of themes. In the portrait, we're moving through the biographical. In Ulysses, we're in the biographical uh, and the biographical unconscious with. Archetypal echoes beginning to come up. In Finnegan's Wake, the archetypal system takes right over. This is exactly what I've been talking about in relation to, to the Jung. The waking life, the unconscious dream life, it has two aspects the biographical and the archetypal. And finally, what one gets in Finnegan's Wake is the power of these archetypes. These characters just mix right into each other. And just as through all things, the light of God is supposed to shine. So through all the figures of Finnegan's way, the light of the two main characters shines. Their names keep coming in one change after another, or in the rhythms of the hero in his mythological aspect, Humphrey Chimpton Earwaker, whose initials HCE mean, here comes everybody, and his spouse, Anna Livia Pluribel, whose initials A-L-P mean Alp, which in German means the nightmare, Uh, but she is the Shakti of her spouse, and they are one, and they shine through everything. Now with that prelude, we have the classical Ovid behind us, already suggested in the beginning, We have the suggestion that all of the mythologies are metamorphoses of a single great mythological system of forms. We have the theme of consubstantiality here. And then we have Dante as the guide to the Gothic inflection of these, echoed through Joyce, who is going to read the whole of. Modern life, all the paraphernalia of the modern world, which little of which existed in Dante's time, re seen and, and re uh, cooked, so to say, in, uh, in, these, um, in this brew of mythological um, themes. Now, let me start then with uh, the Vita Nuova. In the very beginning, Dante beholds Beatrice. She is nine years old. He is nine years old. The next he sees her. She is eighteen. He is eighteen. Twice nine. Eight and one is nine. The he says, is a nine, because her root is in the trinity. Three times three is nine. So, right there, here's a, a human apparition, but the root, the dimension of mystery, leads to God. And Dante's whole work is going to be simply to follow that line to the room. When he sees her, he experiences what one may call aesthetic arrest. It's an eternal moment. He says, at this moment, the lord of my heart recognized I have found my master. The Lord of my senses recognized I have found my bliss. The Lord of my body recognized I have found my agony. Um, What he saw was not simply a lovely girl. What he saw was a ray of light of eternity and it opened that third eye in here, that inward eye, and all of the the world dropped back a dimension, and uh, his life was committed now uh, to this seizure. Then he wrote a poem about this, Mm -hmm. and then he analyzed the poem to tell you all about the circumstances, and so this went on. Then exactly in the middle of the book, (laughs) Becice died, and uh, His sentiments were pitched again, still further, out of the world into another reach of that dimension. And at the end, as I say, he promises himself to write of her such a book as was never written. I'm going to show tomorrow that in portrait, this same uh, principle is followed. Uh, But what I want to speak about now is this miracle of aesthetic arrest. And what is it? Dante comes out of the tradition of the troubadours, and in the uh, discussion of love by the troubadours, a uh, definition is achieved. Now usually when people talk of love, particularly in the ecclesiastical circles, they contrast agape, spiritual love, Christian love, with eros, mere biological physical love, as though those were the two possibilities. Uh, Both agape and eros are indiscriminate. Uh, Love thy neighbor as thyself means no matter who it is, you love that neighbor. And that's a very fine sentiment, of course. Uh, Eros is really the allure and appeal of the organs to the organs in the dark, anyone will do. And in uh, the great uh, early uh, uh, orgiastic cults um, indiscriminate love was the the rule and uh, one doesn't have to go back that far to um, encounter love of that kind. But the definition of the Troubadours is as follows, and this is in Garotte de Barnet, one of the great uh, 12th century uh, poets of Provence, love is born of the eyes and the heart, which is exactly what Dante said. The eyes are the scouts of the heart. And when they have found an object that fascinates them, they recommend this object to the heart. And if it is a gentle heart, that is to say a heart capable not simply of lust but of love that heart is wakened and love is born. This is specific. This is elite. This is not for everybody. This is for the gentle heart and it's got the eye. This is what is talking about. It's through, it is through a specifically personal experience, not a undifferentiated experience, that the beginning of this journey, this personal call Uh, it comes into being. I've called this Aesthetic Arrest. Dante in the the Vita Nuova elucidates in a very um, sophisticated way his um, aesthetic theory. Joyce, in the Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, states his aesthetic theory right out there. Now, I want to review that very briefly. This was the main thing I wanted to talk about today. And... uh, Uh, It's going to set the way for the whole uh, series of talks. In my talk here last year, I concluded with this, and I'm going to begin with this uh, this time. And it doesn't do anybody any harm to hear it again if there's someone who has heard it again. It never does me any harm to say it again. It's always Mm -hmm. something that it's nice to review. Uh, Joyce distinguishes between proper and improper art. Proper art being art in the service of what is properly the function of art. Improper art being art in the service of something else. And he says, proper art is static and improper art is kinetic. Now, that static is the aesthetic arrest. What is kinetic? What does Joyce mean by the kinetic? That's what he tells us, improper art inspires in the beholder either desire or loathing for the object depicted. Now, for example, you open a magazine and you see a picture of a refrigerator and a beautiful girl standing by the refrigerator smiling and you think, I'd love to have a refrigerator like that.
0: (laughs) Uh, This
1: is, uh, as Joyce says, this is pornography. Uh, pornography is art that excites desire for the object depicted, and it's not proper art. Um, if you see a picture, for example, of a dear old lady, and you think, um, oh, what, I love the old soul. I'd love to have a cup of tea with that dear thing. Uh, that's pornography. Uh, your exciting, uh, desire for a relationship to the object is exciting. Or you go into homes where people like to ski in the wintertime, you see pictures of alpine peaks and all, and uh, wonderful ski slopes. This is pornography. It has to do with their desires, and it's relating you to the object depicted, not to the picture. Uh, The other thing, the exciting loathing, is uh, didactic art. Art uh, critical of society. This is art in the service of sociology. Uh, didactic. And almost all of our uh, novel and uh, uh, literary work since Zola's time has been exactly that, a didactic pornographic art. I call the sociological writer a pornographic didactic or a didactic pornographer. Um, The formula was established by Zola and it comes right on, right down. You have wonderful moral lessons, and then uh, people taking their clothes off all over the place. Um, The uh, aesthetic experience has nothing to do with biology or sociology. It has to do with that waking uh, that uh, Dante spoke of. Now, how does Joyce describe that? Since it's not either loathing or desire that's to be excited, what is to be excited? he goes for his next set of definitions to Aquinas. Uh, Aquinas deals with the problem of beauty, and uh, he says that the beauty is what pleases. That's not much of a help. Then come these three terms. Three aspects of the aesthetic experience are defined in terms of three Latin words, integritas, consonantia, and claritas. Stephen translates them wholeness, harmony, and radiance or clarity, wholeness. The object to be rendered is to be seen as one object set off against everything else in the world. We can just uh, draw a frame right around this, let's say. Then what is within that frame is our object. This part of the candle is something else. This isn't a very good, let's put it right there like that. I'm going to cut off this like that. Um, The elements that are within that frame are to be seen as one thing, not two candles and the shelf here and the fraction of a picture and a bit of a bottle. They're, They're to be seen as one thing. And the rest of this shelf is other. It's totally other. The only thing we're going to concentrate on is what is within that that frame. It is to be seen as one thing. When you've seen it as one thing, what matters is whether this is here or here. The relationship of part to part and part to the whole, the rhythm of beauty, that rhythm is the instrument of art. That's what art is about. It's the arrangement of forms in relationship to each other, part to part, each part to the whole, and the whole to each of its parts. That rhythmical organization is the magic thing. And when it is well-achieved, fortunately rendered, it fascinates. It is satisfactory, adequate in itself. That is the radiance. Now this is is a mysterious psychological problem. Why is it that one arrangement, pleases and another does not. But the whole function of the artwork is to hold it to that rhythmical arrangement. And then, says Joyce, you see that it is that thing which it is and no other thing. And this brings us to a very deep mystical realization. There's no meaning there at all. In the absolute sense, the universe and all the things in the universe are absolutely without meaning. Meanings are rational associations in relationship to thought systems and relationships. No sooner do do we hear this than when we think the Buddha is called the One Thus Come, Tathagata. And Buddha consciousness is simply the consciousness of What is? Now, ethics, morality, and biology and all that, these relationships, that is this side of that realization. And when one realizes in the aesthetic impact that that thing is that thing which it is and no other thing, one is oneself pushed back beyond the meaning sphere and the relationship sphere, and one is thrown into one's own being, so to say, that's... The subject proper to that kind of object is experienced as yourself. This is a great moment, and it's exactly what is meant by the Buddha's illumination. You all remember the story of the Buddha at the tree, the immovable spot, aesthetic arrest, static. And how the Lord of Life, whose name is lust and death, lust and criticism, came to him and the Buddha simply touched earth, nature, which has the depth and is rooted in the Trinity, you might say, he dispelled the Lord of desire and loathing, and himself is in the middle spot. And uh, at this point, I think is so important that in our world, the secular arts insofar as they are proper arts and not in the service of this, that, or another cause or lust, are actually the doors that open to the infinite dimension. Now what happens when you get in your work somebody who is desirable or loathsome? And you're depicting life adventures which excite fear and all of this. Well, says Joyce, we move on now. The proper emotions are the tragic and the comic. And what are these emotions? How do they differ from the others of life? Well, he says, Aristotle names the tragic emotions, pity, and terror. And says Stephen very arrogantly. He's a very arrogant youth. Aristotle did not define them. I do as follows, and now here's the great secret. Terror is that emotion which arrests the mind, arrests again, before whatsoever is grave and constant in human sufferings and unites it with the secret cause. Every single word of that is important. Terror is the emotion that arrests the mind before whatsoever is grave and constant in human sufferings and unites it with the secret cause. Pity is the emotion that arrests the mind before whatsoever is grave and constant in human sufferings and unites it with the human sufferer. Now what what is meant by the secret cause? What is meant by grave and constant? (coughs) Mr. A. Shoots Mr. B and kills him. What is the cause of Mr. B's death? Obviously the bullet. That's the instrumental cause. Obviously Mr. A, that's the instrumental cause. Obviously the political differences between Mr. A and Mr. B, that's the instrumental cause. What is the secret cause of Mr. B's death? What is the grave and constant? If in depicting this, you're stressing the fact that Mr. A is black and Mr. B is white, or vice versa, or Mr. A a communist, Mr. B something else, or vice versa, uh, you're talking about things that are not grave and constant in this. In this death, what is grave and constant is mortality, is the passage of time, that all must die. And if what you're rendering is that this man who is a fascist shot that one whom you like better uh you are not telling us that death has come in this way that grave and constant thing and that's why lifts the hair on your head and uh lets you know that this is human and the pity goes for the human sufferer not the sufferer of this that or another category and it's this Double thing, both experienced as positive, not as negative. The pity as a positive experience of compassion. The terror as a positive experience of the mystical awe before the mysterium tremendum of being. Then you've got a tragedy. Now you can look at the death of a salesman and see if it's a tragedy in that light, and it isn't. The uh, these emotions then, which, through the work, open that vista, that static vista, so you don't want to go out and do anything, burn down the town or any of that sort of thing, you are rendered at that moment aware of the deep dimension. So here you have art again as a revelation. The other proper emotion is the comic. And the comic emotion, Joyce tells us, not in the portrait, but in some notes that didn't get into this book, uh, is joy. Joy isn't desire, joy is possession. You are there. And now in his work, what we get is tragic comedy, that is to say both together. And this is the name that we get also in oriental works where through all the activity one is to feel a peace of repose, the rasa known as uh, shanti or peace, must be felt beneath all the activity. And so it is in, uh, in Joyce's work. He, he holds you in a sense of uh, joyous uh, realization, even while uh, the poignancies of the tragic and, uh, and the sorrowful. And now to conclude this, I just want to return to the image of the Buddha under the tree. That tree is the same tree that we know from the Garden of Paradise. And the Garden of Paradise is depicted as two trees. That's because the tree has actually two aspects. That tree is at the point, the midpoint, where one breaks into two, where that divine Bindu, or drop, the impact of eternity on the sphere of time, breaks into the pairs of opposites. I don't know whether you know that wonderful image of Shiva Maheshwara, Shiva the Great Lord, in the uh, temple cave at Elephanta, where there's this single great head, and to the right is a masculine profile, and to the left, a female profile, this aggressive and uh, in a dress, this uh, reposeful and dreamy, this, the... Uh, power, this is the erotic side, masculine and feminine, but the head in the middle is that eternal one out of which the two have come. Or uh, when you look at the image of that bodhisattva in the caves at Ajanta, beautiful, <coughs> graceful, princely youth holding a lotus in his hand, the Avalokiteshvara, his name, the right earring is masculine and the left earring is feminine, that's the same image of this one that, that comes into two. So that the, in the paradise, The tree is that Bindu, and uh, as first eaten by Adam and Eve when they were ignorant of uh, the play of time, because there was no time at that aspect of the story, there was no death, there was no birth, there was nothing of that kind. The timeless zone, what's known as the mythological age, they they eat of the knowledge of good and evil, the two. But if they then should have eaten of the other tree, which is the tree of immortal life, which takes you back to the one again, they would have been as gods. Well, they ate of the the, the tree of the two and were expelled from the garden so that they should not eat the other tree. God the Father said, uh, let's get rid of these two, lest they should eat of the tree and be as gods. And he stationed outside of the garden two cherubim and a flaming sword between to keep them out. Now, during the uh, war with Japan, I saw in a New York newspaper, the most curious picture, it was of a, one of those two great door guardians at Nara with swords, those fierce-looking door guardians. And the, under the picture was this legend, the Japanese worship gods like this. Well, I knew enough to know that uh, the idea was not to stop and worship those, but to walk between them. And uh, then you would come to the great Daibutsu temple and there would be the Buddha seated with his hand saying, don't be afraid under the tree of immortal life. And it suddenly occurred to me, not they, but we worship a god like that, because our god's the one who stationed the cherubim that you shouldn't pass, you see. Uh, then uh, it uh, occurred to me to look at these two door guardians and um, to learn a little bit about them, this is the way one amplifies mythological image. And I noticed that one of them had his mouth closed and the other had his mouth open. And what do those two expressions mean? So you read around a little bit to find what they mean. And what they mean is the closed mouth is aggression, and the open mouth, desire. Those are exactly the two sentiments of the kinetic experience which keep us out of the garden, and they keep us out of the garden of art. And if we can kill them in ourselves, we'll walk right through the gate. Now, in the Christian version of this whole affair, Christ's tree, Christ's cross, is identified with the tree of immortal life in the garden from which men had been excluded. And Christ is celebrated in the Middle Ages as that hero who, like Prometheus, stole from the uh, negative god the good that he was hoarding to himself, fire in one case, eternal life in the other. The cross is that tree Christ on the cross is the fruit of that tree, and he guides us to it so that he is exactly the Buddha who is under that tree. Christ is hanging on the tree, the Buddha is seated on the tree. When the Lord of death and lust approached the Buddha, and the Buddha dispelled him by being absolutely immobile and then touching earth in the earth-touching posture so that the goddess earth herself said, this is my beloved son who through many th- lifetimes has so given it himself that there's no one here. Go away, you bad man. Uh, illumination was achieved. This motif of the Buddha touching the earth is exactly the equivalent of the crucified Christ. It's with that that he crucifies, as it were, cuts out The nature impulses, and Christ gives his body with his nature impulses and goes through the central point of the cross to the Father. And the Buddha, likewise, goes to what is not the Father in that tradition, but eternal consciousness. Now, in the Christian tradition, this whole thing is is interpreted, the expulsion from the garden and the return to the cross, in terms of guilt and atonement. But the word atonement in English today is from the word atonement. If you're going to interpret it in terms of you and God being separate from each other, and you've offended God, and now you have been atoned with God, you are dealing with this in terms of a kind of pedagogical nursery story reading. And then those two cherubim are actual angels there to keep you out. But when you interpret the angels as simply aspects of your own sentiments, desire and loathing, which are keeping you out of God, and You realize that you're being kept out by your own sentiments. And the whole mythology, which in the Christian tradition is interpreted in terms of nursery rhymes, the father and the bad son and the child reconciled with the father, becomes interpreted in psychological terms. And this is exactly what Joyce does with all these. Things. He takes the Christian symbology which is entirely in terms of a God who's supposed to exist and we in relationship to the God, and he rereads it in terms of these Gnostic principles, these principles of psychology instead of pedagogy, and the whole thing opens up with a whole new light. Now it's that that I hope to uh, be able to uh, show through Joyce not only what Joyce has done, but also what happens to the symbologies when one approaches them this way. And I can tell you that every symbology worth even thinking about is in Joyce. He has, I don't know how he did it. His eyes were so bad he could hardly read, and yet he's read every book, and it's all there. I worked something like four years uh, writing the Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake, and uh, they were all, every minute of them, devoted to Joyce's uh, Finnegan's Wake. And uh, when I got through with that, I found that everything I read was just a quotation from Finnegan's Wake*, no matter when it had been written. Uh, it was the funniest thing. When, when you read, uh, you were bumping into Joyce all over the place. You read a newspaper account of something it read like one of the comic uh, passages and uh, so on and so on. So I made a vow that I wouldn't read Joyce anymore that I wanted to have my own life, after all. (laughs) And then uh, some years after that, my wife, who during those years had had imprinted on her tender mind uh, my own zeal for this book, she was traveling around the country, um, dancing, performing, and she would take Finnegan's Wake with her, and she fell in love with the book and decided to do a kind of dance play uh, based on the Anna Olivia Pluribel, the heroine of Shenigan's Wake, and uh, then I found myself back in Finnegans Wake again. Uh, but there had been enough of a, of a span between these two periods for me to, to feel reconciled to returning to George, particularly since it was my pretty wife who was representing Anna Olivia, and the whole thing came back to me in terms of our own life again. It, it is an, it's a magical thing this man has done, and I uh, I hope I can give you uh, some sense of it in these uh, three coming uh, talks.
0: Professor Campbell begins this lecture by saying that he was invited to talk about schizophrenia, but that he didn't know anything about schizophrenia. He did say, however, that he could talk about James Joyce. Now, this wasn't just a random witticism or a non sequitur on Campbell's part. He was certainly aware of the critical opinions that suggested Joyce was mad, even schizophrenic, because, as the conventional wisdom would have it, only a madman could write Ulysses in Finnegan's Wake. Patience and a closer inspection reveals Joyce's works to be sublime in their symbolism and humor. In the lecture we've just listened to, Professor Campbell mentioned that his first encounter with Joyce's work was in Paris in 1927, And almost immediately, he says, Joyce became an influential guide for his own interpretation of mythological material. In this remark of Campbell's, one clearly sees that the primary lens with which he approaches the study of myth is a literary one. Perhaps this is a preference introduced to him as an undergraduate and graduate student in literature at Columbia. The great literary critic Lionel Trilling who's only a year younger than Campbell, and like Campbell graduated from Columbia College in 1925, maintained that literature has the ability to not only challenge the morality and conventions of culture, but to be an influence capable of reshaping culture. In his book, The Moral Obligation to be Intelligent, Trilling wrote that at Columbia College, the prepotent assumption was that intelligence was connected with literature, that it was advanced by literature. And now, it's probably true that literature has never really solved anything. But if you think of novels like Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, or Toni Morrison's Beloved, these books, among others, have been instrumental in moving the needle of public opinion toward what may eventually become solutions because they cast such an aesthetic, distressing, and ultimately humanizing light on the often terrible realities of life and human nature. Such an experience is simultaneously a loss and a gain. There's a loss of innocence and the distressing awareness of no longer as Wordsworth put it, of being housed in a dream. But Wordsworth also tells us that, a deep distress has humanized my soul. What we lose is very little compared to what we gain in the achievement of a humanized soul. The power of literature to humanize is exactly the power that Professor Campbell finds in the literature of myth. As I mentioned there have been many theories put forward over the years that speculate Joyce was a schizophrenic. In a Harper's Magazine article on July thirty-first, 2014, Kevin Birmingham even made a case for Joyce having contracted syphilis as a young man and, consequentially, fell into madness. That syphilis trope seems to have been a favorite trope to apply to modernist authors who were literary singularities and whose work is difficult to understand or challenging. Then there's the additional fact that Joyce's daughter, Lucia, was quite mad. And heredity has been offered as an explanation for her mental illness. She got it from her father, the theory goes. But what if he got some of his genius from her? She was diagnosed with schizophrenia and institutionalized in 1935. She died in 1982, still institutionalized at the age of 75. And yet her life was a fascinating one, and one can't help but sense how close, even in her madness, she was to genius. In 1934, Joyce said, People talk about my influence on my daughter. But what about her influence on me? Joyce took his daughter to many of Europe's most famous psychiatrists, including Carl Jung. Who could do nothing for her, explaining that she was so bound up in her father's psychic system that he could do nothing about it. Speaking of Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist was frankly flummoxed by Ulysses. Jung wrote in a 1934 essay on Ulysses that, quote, an indignant reader might easily fling the book aside with the diagnosis schizophrenia, unquote. Jung seemed to want to regard Ulysses at least as a work of nihilism. But I think he missed the possibility that rather than nihilism, it was really a brilliant study of entropy. Anyway, Jung goes on to write that it would never occur to me to class Ulysses as a product of schizophrenia. Moreover, nothing would be gained by this label, for we wish to know why Ulysses exerts such a powerful influence, and not whether its author is a high-grade or a low-grade schizophrenic. Ulysses is no more a pathological product than modern art as a whole. Professor Campbell mentions in the opening remarks of this lecture that he had the opportunity to meet with Dr. John Perry in San Francisco. Dr. Perry received his M.D. from Harvard in 1941, and he was a member of the first class to train at the Jung Institute in Zurich. Dr. Perry was, for some time, a central figure in the life of the San Francisco Jung Institute. He was known as a radical thinker in the mental health field and believed that there were some benefits to schizophrenia in the sense that the psychotic state could lead to a higher visionary consciousness if allowed to run its course. In his conversations with Dr. Perry, Professor Campbell learned that the imagery of schizophrenia resembled the mythological imagery in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Perry's notion of mythological images being affect images. Affect images are images that comprised systems of emotional impulses and sentiments, and was similar to Campbell's thesis that the images of myth were energy releasing and directing. In schizophrenia, Perry believed that a separation of affect and image takes place. And therefore, the schizophrenic individual has no images through which affect can be processed or released or altered or explored. Parallel to Perry's theory, Campbell believed that mythology is a system of images that endow the mind and the sentiments with a sense of participation in a field of meaning, and the images of myth had been separated from affect and meaning through literalization, historicization, and their treatment as fact. Jung also has, as one might expect, an interesting take on image, affect, and meaning. Again, writing in the aforementioned essay on Ulysses, he says this, The distortion of beauty and meaning by grotesque, objectivity, or equally grotesque irreality is, in the insane, a consequence of the destruction of the personality. In the artist, it has a creative purpose. Far from his work being an expression of the destruction of his personality, the modern artist finds the unity of his artistic personality in the destructiveness. In other words, Jung suggests that The affect images of works of art such as Ulysses work in a new way to deconstruct conventional thought, perhaps even conventional reality, and create a new or what Hegel might have called sublated reality, a more mysterious and perhaps even mythical world that despite its manifest disorderliness gives way to a more whole and holistic consciousness. In Jung's opinion, Joyce was an artist who knew his trade exceedingly well. And as vexing as Ulysses is to Jung the reader, Jung the psychiatrist recognizes the book as a great work of art. In a private letter to Joyce, dated September 27, 1932, Jung writes, "'Your book as a whole has given me no end of trouble, "'and I was brooding over it for about three years,' until I succeeded to put myself into it. But I must tell you that I'm profoundly grateful to yourself, as well as to your gigantic opus, because I learned a great deal from it. I shall probably never be quite sure whether I did enjoy it, because it meant too much grinding of nerves and of gray matter. I also don't know whether you will enjoy what I've written about Ulysses, because I couldn't help telling the world how much I was bored how I grumbled, how I cursed, and how I admired. Those 40 pages of nonstop run in the end is a string of veritable psychological peaches. Jung called Ulysses a document humain, saying that this book can release the spiritually bound and that there is life in this book. I find this to be a remarkable statement about the vitalizing power of the images in this novel. And Jung's confessional epistle, can hardly be called less, amounts to a rather tortured, yet I think sincere affirmation of Joyce's artistic genius by the man Joyce referred to in Finnegan's Wake as the Swiss Tweedledee, who shouldn't be confused with the Viennese Tweedledee. In a sad footnote to the discussion of Professor Campbell's conversations with Dr. Perry, I learned in Thomas Kirsch's book, The Jungians, A Comparative and Historical Perspective. Kirsch was president of the San Francisco Jung Institute from 1976 to 1978. And in his book, he writes that in the early 70s, it was disclosed that Dr. Perry had repeatedly been sexually involved with some of his female patients. He was placed on probation by the California State Medical Board, but in spite of this sanction, continued to have sexual relations with his clients. Eventually, Dr. Perry was forced to surrender his medical license, as well as his connection to the San Francisco Young Institute. He died in 1998, and his obituary in the San Francisco gate was brief, it was subdued, and it omitted any mention of his offenses. Since then, his participation in the San Francisco Young Institute has been effectively purged from its contemporary profile and appears to be relegated to the dustbin of history. In this lecture, Professor Campbell notes some of Joyce's similarities to Ovid, specifically in his Tale of Daedalus, a portion of which became the epigraph for Joyce's novel, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And he sets his mind to unknown arts, and changes the laws of nature." This quote refers to the Greek genius Daedalus the father. But Joyce is focused mostly in portrait of the artist on the fictional Irish son, Stephen Daedalus. In his novels, it's the son who wants to turn his mind to unknown arts and change the laws of nature. It seems to me that the particular law of nature Stephen is attempting to change is the inescapable reality of human suffering. And Stephen suffers mightily in his way through both Portrait of the Artist and Ulysses. From his musings on Bruegel's 16th century painting Landscape with the Fall of Icarus, W. H. Auden captures this image of a son trying to defy the laws of nature in his poem Musée Beaux Arts. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth... There always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course, anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot, where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship That must have seen something amazing. A boy falling out of the sky had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. Professor Campbell has, in his various lectures, essays, books, often remarked on the uncanny parallels between James Joyce and Thomas Mann, how Joyce in his Catholicism follows Dante, and in his Protestantism, Mann follows Goethe. In this lecture, he depicts these parallels very well, and in doing so, mentioned Mann's concept, which Campbell described as plastic irony or the plastic erotic. And I think it might be useful to take a moment to clarify what that phrase, itself a bit plastic in Professor Campbell's usage, means. Stephen Dedalus's imperfections and sufferings, his spiritual paralysis, his existential dread, his inability to reach the heights of the artistic achievement he desired, which, when taken as a whole, Campbell says in a rare little 1973 monograph titled Erotic Irony and Mythic Forms in the Art of Thomas Mann, constitute exactly the right word. You'll notice that during the intervening years, Campbell began calling this concept erotic irony rather than plastic irony, and I quote now from that monograph. The right word, Mann had recognized, wounds and can even kill. Yet the duty of the writer must be to name and to name exactly. But what chiefly have to be named in a person are his imperfections, since in a human life perfection does not exist. Accordingly, what makes a person lovable are precisely his imperfections, and what the right word names as an imperfection is exactly what is to be loved. The arrow of judgment, then, is to fly to its mark with a balm on its point of compassion. For the function of art is not annihilation, but celebration, Erotic or plastic irony is the name that Thomas Mann gave to this principle. It is basically a Nietzschean principle, recognizing first with Schopenhauer the inherent fault and injustice in every act of life, but then with a courageous leap of faith, so to say, affirming all with a resounding yea. Now, Dante served Joyce as a model of the artist, and with that clue, one can read Stephen Dedalus as an Irish Dante. According to Richard Elman, Joyce's biographer, Dante was Joyce's favorite author. And we can read in Portrait of the Artist of Stephen's vision of his own Beatrice. In chapter 4, Stephen is wading up a rivulet in the strand, emotionally and spiritually lost, alone and out of touch with his own soul, which had drawn back from his destiny, when he sees a girl, touched, he says, with the wonder of mortal beauty, standing before him, in midstream, gazing out to sea. She is, like Dante's Beatrice, Stephen's epiphany. Let me read this from chapter four, in Portrait of the Artist. Heavenly God, cried Stephen's soul in an outburst of profane joy. He turned away from her suddenly and set off across the strand. His cheeks were aflame, his body was aglow, his limbs were trembling. On and on and on and on he strode far out over the sands singing wildly to the sea crying to greet the advent of the life that had cried to him. She was... Stephen thought the angel of mortal youth and beauty who threw open the gates of, quote, all the ways of error and glory, unquote. In other words, like Dante in the epiphanic moment, Stephen understood his soul's calling and committed himself to the divine art to which he aspired. In a moment of Joyce's life imitating his own art, he met a young woman in 1918 named Martha Fleischman, who was beautiful and intoxicating, but she was unwilling to go beyond a rather exquisite flirtation. In an interview later in her life, Martha recalled meeting Joyce as she was returning home one evening. He had looked at her with what she said was an expression of such wonder on his face that it made her hesitate before entering her house. Joyce told her that she reminded him of a girl he had once seen standing on the beach. Of his home country. In their correspondence, Joyce would sometimes address Martha as Nausicaa, signing himself Odysseus. She must have so strongly called to mind Joyce's epiphany bestowed upon him by the angel of mortal beauty he wrote about in Portrait of the Artist that Martha's memory survives, although depotentiated and eroticized in the Nausicaa chapter of Ulysses. At the time, however, it seems that Joyce regarded Martha as a Beatrice-like inspiratrix, and I think it might be right to use a few lines from his last letter to her as our own benediction to the energies of creation, consciousness, and perseverance. Joyce wrote to her, and I'm quoting, And through the night of the bitterness of my soul, the kisses of your lips fell on my heart. Soft as rose petals, gentle as dew. And he concludes by writing, O Rosa Mystica, Ora Prome, O Mystic Rose, pray for me. This is the final episode of Season 2 of Pathways with Joseph Campbell. And I want to thank you for listening along over the past two seasons. It's an incredible honor for me to spend a few hours each month with you, And it is an indescribable pleasure to be able to dive deep into Campbell's lectures and elaborate on his always fascinating, engaging scholarship. Please visit the Joseph Campbell Foundation website at jcf.org and check out the other podcasts in the MythMaker Podcast Network, as well as the other resources offered there. And thank you once again for your support. And I'll be back on June 1st with Season 3, and another rare and wonderful Campbell Lecture on the Joseph Campbell Foundation's podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a
1: production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff.
0: Executive producer Robert Walter. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Seth Balin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.